You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Well, I am excited to be with you this morning because we are starting a new series. We're starting a new series in the book of Genesis. Uh, the book of, of Genesis is, of course, the first book in, um, in the Bible. In many ways, it sort of lays the framework for the way that we read the whole of Scripture, the rest of Scripture. So you'll see that we're calling this series An Eternal Family Tree. Because one of the things that you'll notice as we walk through the book of Genesis is that it is laying out for us the the family tree, really the family tree from the very beginning. But in many ways, this family tree begins in eternity. It begins when God creates mankind. In fact, the, the very first genealogy that's recorded for us in Genesis, and there are several genealogies recorded for us in Genesis, but the very first genealogy that's recorded for us in Genesis begins not with Adam and Eve, where we might have thought it would start. It begins instead with God's creation. It starts with God creating. It's in chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1. It says this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then listen to this, when God created man. That's the starting point. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and blessed them and he named them man when they were created. And then it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. And so you can see that the the pattern of the genealogy begins not with Adam and Eve having Seth in the image of Adam. It begins instead with God creating man in in his image. And that's that's why we call ourselves the children of God. For indeed, we are the children of God. We are made in His image, created for a, for a life without end. We're all members of, of this eternal family tree. And so as we walk through the book of Genesis, what we're going to see is this family tree is going to be laid out for us. It's going to begin by thinking about all of humanity And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, the focus of Scripture is going to narrow down to a particular branch on this family tree. It's going to narrow down to the descendants of Abraham, who we're later on going to call the Hebrews. We'll call them the the children of Israel. And even later, we might refer to them as the, the nation of Israel. It's from those people, it's from that genealogical line that Jesus will come into the world, that Jesus will save the world from that line. But as I said, we're going to see that transition in the text coming in chapter 12. So we've got a ways before we get there. But it's important for us to remember that even as we begin our study in the book of Genesis because while the story of the book of Genesis begins long before the Israelites were formed as a people, it is a particularly Jewish book. We are reading a piece of Jewish literature here. And so we must read the book of Genesis all the way back from chapter 1, before the Jews existed. We must read it as a Jewish book. And so 
We want to think about the context in which this book was written. You may remember that the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the books of Moses. That is to say, they were written down or these stories were recorded by Moses. And that's important because it gives us the context of the book of Genesis. It tells us when it was written, what was going on in the life of the Israelites when this was written. So let me just give a quick survey that will get us to Moses so that we can understand when this book was written and what was going on in the world. So as we're going to see in just a moment when we start with Genesis 1, the beginning of the whole thing is creation. And more specifically, we even start a little bit before creation, if that's possible. We start with the existence of an eternal God. And the the first action of this eternal God, the first action of anyone is that he creates all things. This eternally existing triune God creates everything out of nothing, and it was all good, even, even very good. And he specifically creates humanity, and he creates them in his own image, and is after his likeness. And he gives them dominion then over, over all of creation, over everything that he has made. But shortly after that, we see humanity failing in their task. And, and as, as a result, the whole of creation, humanity included, is broken. The whole of creation becomes subject to to decay. And almost as soon as this brokenness enters the world, we see God responding. As soon as it happens, God responds and he comes in grace and he gives promises of a coming redemption. It's going to come down the road. He doesn't tell us when, but he says it's certainly coming. He's going to do something about it. He's going to make the world all new again. But we also see this world and and humanity just sort of spiraling out of control. As you read through Genesis, the whole thing is just falling apart. We see that first sin in chapter 3, but by the time we get to chapter 4, we've already degraded so far that we're murdering one another. As my grandfather used to say, what a wicked web we weave when at first we deceive. Well, when at first we sin against the God of the universe, apparently the web is even worse. And so God, seeing this world just falling apart, God is going to bring a flood. And, and we're skipping over, just to be clear, centuries of time here. We're just moving quick in a survey here. So God's going to send a flood, but here's the thing about the flood. The flood serves both as a picture of his judgment and of his grace. Because in the midst of this flood, he saves a people for himself. He preserves humanity in the midst of the flood. And then we come to chapter 12. And as I said, in chapter 12 of Genesis, we're going to focus in. Hundreds, thousands of years have passed, and yet now we're focusing in on this one guy, a guy named Abram. And we're going to come and follow his line. Here's what happens. God comes to him and he says, hey, Abram, come and follow me. Come and follow me and I will give you the land that we're going to walk through. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
And so God makes a covenant with Abram both to make a great nation but also to to give him a place to put that great nation. And he says, in the midst of that great nation, I, your God, will dwell with you forever. And so it's here that the covenantal lineage begins. We begin to follow as it starts off kind of slow because we've got Abram and then his son Isaac, so just one, and then his son Jacob, so the line's not getting any bigger. But then Jacob has 12 sons. That's when things begin to really take off. Jacob has these 12 sons, and and he and his 12 sons, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, they've moved themselves to Egypt. We'll talk about why later. Just know that they get to Egypt, and when they're in Egypt, the people begin to multiply greatly. There's so many people, so much so that when we get to the book of Exodus, the very next book in the Bible, the Pharaoh looks out and he says, what am I going to do with all of these people who are not Egyptians? I know, I'll enslave them. And so the Pharaoh enslaves the people of Israel. And again, centuries pass. Centuries pass as these people live in slavery. We still haven't gotten to Moses. Then in Exodus chapter 2, as the hands of the enslaving Egyptians grow increasingly heavy, Moses is born. And 80 years later, it's that Moses who will confront Pharaoh and say to him that God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not a chance, not going to do it. And so God begins to send plagues against the Egyptians. Water becomes blood. The land fills up with, with frogs and then gnats and then flies. And then all of their animals begin to die and then boils pop up all over their bodies. Their crops are are ruined by hail and then by locusts. And the whole land goes dark. And then the firstborn child of all the families in Egypt dies. And eventually... Eventually, the the Egyptians and Pharaoh decide to let the people of Israel go. And they begin this journey, this journey to the land that God had promised to Abraham so many, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They begin to journey to that land, and the first thing that happens is they get to an unpassable waterway called the Red Sea, and God splits it in two, and they walk across it as if it were dry land continuing on their way. And you may be wondering why any of that or why specifically why all of that would matter to us as we start to read in the book of Genesis today. Well, that's the context of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is written, it is given, it's the record that is given to the people of God, this recently enslaved people, so that they can know who their God is. So they can know who who they are. What is their identity? So they can know how they're supposed to live in the world. And so I want us to let those three questions just sort of ring in our mind today as we read from Genesis chapter 1 in just a little bit. Who is God? Who are we? What's our identity? And how are we to live in this world? So just imagine yourself in the place of the Israelites. They've lived centuries in slavery. Their identity has been completely stripped from them. 
Their understanding of who God is has been destroyed at the hand of their oppressors. These, these people following Moses out in the wilderness probably had never in their life had the opportunity to make a decision about how they would live in the world. And so Moses in Genesis is going to show them who their God is, what their identity is, and he's going to give them their, their dignity back by saying, you get to make a choice about how you will live in this world. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, I would encourage you just to take it out, open it up to the very beginning of the whole book. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you will find it on page number one. That's right, it's the very beginning of the book. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Genesis 2 Three. And, and if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, we would encourage you, please take one of these with you. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Well, let me read now. Genesis 1, we're going to read quite a bit, so following along might be helpful. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetations, plant yielding Plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We can maybe sense how how resonant a passage like that would be to the people of Israel just led out of slavery in Egypt by the powerful hand of God. It would make sense to them in ways that are even beyond our own understanding. It would make sense to them that the God who caused darkness to cover the whole land was the same God who created light. It would make sense to them that the God who would cause frogs and gnats and flies and locusts to just appear in droves was the same God who had caused them to come into existence in the first place. Right, but who is this God? And, and, and who are they? Who are the Israelites? Who are, who are we? And, and what does this God have to say about the way we ought to live in the world? And so, so here's what's happening. God, through Moses, begins to tell them that their history. He begins to show them their, their family tree, this eternal family tree that not only leads to these Israelites escaping from slavery in Egypt, but leads all the way down to us, the followers of Christ even today. And so who does this passage tell us that God is? Who does it tell us we are? What does it say about the way we ought to live? Well, let's start where the passage starts. The question of who is God. That first verse, the first verse of the, of the whole Bible is packed. It is packed 
with information about the nature of God. Here's what it says. It simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all it says. And yet it tells you so much about God. It tells us that God, unlike everything else in all of creation, God is eternal. He has always been. He always exists. He exists outside of time and space. We exist, obviously, inside of time and space. God exists outside of time and space, but he interacts with and he enters into both, right? Truly, with his first act, the first act of creation is also the creation of time and the creation of space. The very beginning, God who has already existed, God who has always been in just timeless eternity past, He creates. And He creates the heavens and the earth. That is to say, He creates everything that is. Everything that is. The very first verse of Scripture, we're told that our God is eternal and He is infinite and everything else is under Him and made by Him. But we're also told that this eternal, infinite God is relational. Now, He's relational in His, in his very being, in the very nature of who he is. Now, I know what you're thinking. How do you see that in verse 1? It's not there in verse 1. If you've been going to church for a really long time, you're like, he's about to talk about verse 26. No, it's in verse 1, I promise you. It's there. But you have to know Hebrew to get it. So I'm going to let you in on a little bit of Hebrew here. Here's what it says, verse 1. In the beginning, God. But the word... The word that we're translating God here is the word Elohim. And Elohim is a plural word. So here's what he's saying. In the beginning, Elohim, in the, this plural God, it's, it's the plural for the word Eloha. And this plural God, in the very beginning, he's going to create. Now that word for create is bara. Elohim bara. But bara is singular. So here's what he's telling you from the very beginning. This plural God, he's writing a sentence that doesn't even make sense. If you were in Microsoft Word, it would have that little green line under it. This is bad grammar. He is saying the plural God singularly created. The God of eternity is a relational God. Somehow both plural and singular at the same time. Now, of course, you were right to say that if we look at verses 26 and 27, it becomes more clear. Let's also look there. If we move all the way down to verses 26 and 27, it says this about the creation of humanity. It says, then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created, Elohim bara, 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The God of Scripture is eternally relational in his very being. He is, he is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. And this eternal, infinite, relational God in community is going to create. He acts in community. And he creates everything out of nothing. We see that phrase, the heavens and the earth. It's simply saying everything. Right? You've all heard someone say, I would move heaven and earth to get to you. What are they saying? I would move everything to get to you. It's the same in the Hebrew here. I would do anything. I would move everything. God creates the heavens and the earth. That is, God creates everything out of nothing in the very beginning. But we're told in verse 2 what that everything looked like. It had been created, but verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The whole of creation was formless and empty. And Genesis 1 begins to tell us about God forming and filling this creation. And we are going to get into the, the weeds about, about how long all of this took or what the process was or anything like that mostly because none of that is the point of the text. None of that is what it's trying to say. So all of those arguments about how long it took or what the process was, that all of those arguments are this, they're a distraction from the text. They distract us from the glorious revelation of God. That's what they do. The point of Genesis 1 is to tell us who God is. It's to tell us who we are and how we ought to live in the world. So any system that you come up with is not coming from the text because that's not what the text is talking about. However, let me just say this one thing. If you are trying to figure out something about the days of creation, here's the problem. Just remember that the earth already existed before you even got to the days that you were talking about. So it becomes really confusing to try to figure all of that out when verse 2 tells us the earth is there, and then we start with those. And that's important, in fact, because the earth is already there, formless and void, and what we see God doing is forming and filling this already created formless and empty earth. In other words, God begins the process of subduing creation to give it shape, to, to fill it with life. And so he creates right, light, and he separates it from darkness and he forms the sky and, and the sea. And he forms the dry land and, and the plant life. He forms all of this and then he begins to fill it up. And so he fills up the day with the sun. And he fills up the night with, with the moon and the stars. And he fills the, the skies and the seas with birds and, and fish. And then he fills the land with all sorts of animals. And the thing that he repeatedly says just over and over again in this work of forming and filling is just how good it all is. It's just good. Everything he brings about is good. And then we're told in verse 31 that he kind of steps back 
and he looks at everything. Verse 31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. The eternal, infinite, relational God in community creates out of nothing. And then he subdues that creation to bring out its goodness. And in his final act of creation, he creates humanity in his own image after his likeness. And it's a different kind of creation from all the rest. The text slows down right here. It focuses in on something that is far more significant than all the rest. He's showing the people of Israel who they are. And he says, you are God's very image on earth. So the image of God fills the earth. So seeing all that he has made and how very good it all is, we're told in Genesis 2 that God rests. Let me just read those verses from Genesis 2 again. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, that is, they've been formed, and all the host of them, that is, they've been filled. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The eternal, infinite, relational God in community creates everything out of nothing. And then he subdues that creation to bring out the goodness, and then he fills the earth with his people, his very image. And then he enters into his holy rest. That's who God is. It's what God has done. And so the people of, of Israel can, can look at that. And they begin, they begin to know their God. They begin to worship their God. We can, we can look at that and we can know God and we can worship God. But then the text answers this next question, who are we? What's our identity? And how are we supposed to live in this world? What's our calling? Right, perhaps most notably in this passage, we see that we are image bearers of God. We are called to represent, to, to reflect his character in and to the whole rest of creation. And so this relational God who subdues creation to bring out its goodness, who fills the earth with his people, who enters into his holy rest, we are to reflect and to represent that God to the rest of the earth. In fact, that's exactly what he blesses us to do, those very things to subdue creation and bring out its goodness and to fill the earth with image bearers. It's exactly what he blesses us to do in verse 27. So here's what it says. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as God's image bears, we too are relational. 
from the, from the very beginning, we were created out of relationship and into relationship. This unity in plurality is so abundantly evident in this verse, it can't even seem to make up its mind about whether to use plural or singular words to talk about us. We are in the image of God, relational, just like He is. And did you notice this? There's only one humanity. But if we were to read back through all of Genesis 1, what we would find is the plants and the fish and the birds and the animals were all created according to their kinds. There's a whole bunch of them, all sorts of them. But there's only one humanity. There's only one kind of human, the image-bearing kind. We are the image-bearers of God. So whatever differences that we may see in one another, God sees his image. And then he blesses. He blesses that humanity with a command. He gives to the plurality of humanity a singular, unified set of commands. And so, bearing God's relational image, humanity is commanded to do these two things. In the context of, of relationship, Right? We're, to, we're to fill the earth and we're to subdue the earth. Right? We can't even fulfill those outside of community. That's kind of the point, right? It's pretty easy to see when we talk about being fruitful and multiplying. You can't do that on your own. You need community in order to have more people. But the idea comes out even in our obedience to the rest of the command as well. Any of our obedience in isolation, is just a completely foreign idea to Scripture. That we would just secretly and in solitude be obedient to God is not the sort of thing that Scripture talks about. Scripture talks about us in community, fulfilling the commands of God. At our core, we, like God, are relational. And what are we called to do? Well, we are blessed to do the same things that, that God does. We're called to fill the earth with the people of God. We're called to subdue the earth and to bring out its goodness. And then we're called to enter in to his holy rest. Genesis 1 wasn't written to just anybody. It was written to the rescued people of God as a way of showing them who their God was, who they were, how they were supposed to live in the world. And we are their descendants. We too are the rescued people of God. If you have trusted in Christ, here's the truth. You have been rescued from your slavery to sin. And you have in front of you a new life that God has laid out in front of a new identity, a new way to live in this world. And so perhaps just like, just like the Israelites fresh out of slavery in Egypt, those questions resonate with you as well. So let me just be a little bit more clear. Right? We bear the image of God and we've been blessed by him to display that image to the world, to represent him. We do that in two ways. We expand in number and in goodness. We expand in number and in goodness. The call of God 
on the life of his people is to bring more people of God into the world. That's his call. Now, in, in the Old Testament, when we look at Genesis 1, for instance, or when we look a little bit later after Noah steps off the ark, or we look a little bit later even to Abraham, the way that we did that was we had babies. That's how we brought more people of God into the world. But that's not the way anymore. The way we bring more people of God into the world is we share the life-changing news that there is salvation to be found in Jesus. We invite others into the family of God through the proclamation of the gospel that if they would repent and believe in Jesus, they would be saved. They too would have a new identity given to them. And that doesn't mean that we don't have babies. It just means that if you have a baby, you better declare the gospel to that baby all the way up until they hear this life-changing news for themselves. They would repent and believe in Jesus. So we expand in number, but we also expand in goodness. We, we work together to bring out goodness in every area of our world. Christians ought to be on the front lines of fighting against things like injustice. We ought to be on the, the front lines of fighting for things like, like equity. We ought to be the first people to stand up against oppression and to stand for things like, like dignity. And, and specifically, when we look at this text, we ought to be on the front lines of caring for our world. This is the thing that we've been commanded to do. And we would push back against things like, like pollution and destructive forces that we would seek to preserve our planet and the people who live on it. We're called to care for and to subdue all of creation, not for our own purposes, but for its good and for God's glory. And here's what we're told at the end of it all. In Revelation, we're told that when, when Christ comes again and, and, and the kingdom of heaven truly comes to earth. Here's what it says. It says that the nations will come in to that great city, the new Jerusalem, and they will bring with them all of their treasures, which is to say all of the good that they have brought out of subdued creation. They will bring it with them and they will give it as, a, as an offering over to the Lamb. This is a thing that we've been called to do. God's intent from the beginning was not that we would stay in the Garden of Eden. His intent is that we would work the ground, subdue creation, and bring goodness out of it. All sorts of goodness that we could give back over to the Lord. And we do that in partnership with one another. We do that in relationship with each other. That's why we think joining a church is really important. That's why we have a thing like church membership. So we can do that together. And that's also why we as a church partner with churches all over the city to do that. Because we think that it's important that we all do this work together. Because it is exhausting and it is overwhelming and we can't do it on our own so we do it in community. But it's still exhausting. And it's still overwhelming and that's why at the end of the day we have been invited into this sacred rest of God. It's why we take days like today to rest 
a day set apart to say, this task is too big for me, and so I can just rest from it and let God take care of it for a day. It's on Him. We can rest. A declaration of our trust in God. And in all of those things, we wait for that day, that final day, when God fulfills His promise to make all things new. On that day, we will join Him in a rest that will be eternal. This eternal, infinite, relational God in community created everything out of nothing. He subdued creation to bring out its goodness. He filled the earth with his people, his image bearers, and then he entered into his holy rest. And as his image bearers, we're invited, we're blessed to join him in that very work of expanding expanding in number and in goodness. May we be faithful to do so. Let's pray. God, when we look, when we look at texts like this one in Genesis 1, we can do nothing but be overwhelmed with your glory. And so we, we just give you praise that you who are eternal and infinite would even, would even choose to create. And that more than choosing to create, that you would choose to, to create us. And you would choose to create us in your image, to join you in your amazing work. And so Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful to do just that. Lord, that you would help us to look at, at every area of life and see what you're doing there and to ask you that question, how can I join you? Lord, give us the courage, the boldness to join you in your work no matter the area of life. And we pray that as we do, Lord, that you would expand the number of your people and that you would expand your goodness in the world. In Christ's name, amen.